Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb. And love it or hate it, we're talking about Historic again. The level of enthusiasm you had in your welcome is not something I can keep pace with this week. I don't know why you were so excited. You felt more enthused than I've heard you sound maybe since like the start of the pandemic. You were, you were ready I'm, to go this week. I'm overcompensating. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Completely false. No, I woke up at my, my what is, what are days, right? What is time? Yeah. Good question. I woke up at about 4 a.m. and it's 6 p.m. My time currently. And it's it just started to hit me over like the last hour when we were like doing prep for this. So I'm exhausted and that's why I tried to amp it up. Uh, I see your sleepiness pushing you to kind of be downtrodden. But instead, as a professional, you've amplified your emotions and brought your A-game to the podcast, which myself and all of our listeners certainly appreciate. I will bring my usual C, C- to the podcast and hope that's enough to carry us through. Word. I appreciate that, dude. No problem. Yeah, I I like historic. I'm not that excited about it. Sorry if uh, <laughs> I, I tricked y'all like I tricked Brian, but uh, I've, I've been liking it. I don't know. I got to watch the Zendikar Rising Championship. That was pretty decent, at least the historic parts. I mostly tried to skip the standard parts. And there's a lot of historic happening this weekend. I have some decks I like. I want to talk about it. I'm with you. I also enjoy historic. I, I do think like my patience for Uro continuing to be part of the format is starting to wane. And it's not even that like I think it's that far afield, although I, I do think it is part of like the de facto best deck. But it, it kind of keeps pace with everything else going on because the format is so strange and has so many power outliers, things like Mux's collected company that don't really, quote unquote, belong, but are there. Right. So it doesn't feel like it just completely outclasses everything, but it's such a stupid card. Like, it's just it's just stupid. Like, nobody wants to play the type of games that Uro encourages. And if it, if it was even close. I, I, don't know, I don't know about that. I kind of like those games. Okay, hold on. Hold I on. don't like Uro. Yeah, so like, I, I think you like a longer game, a game with like more decisions, a game with some back and forth, but do you want it to happen in the exact same fashion every time where it's just like jockeying for a position around this one card that just does everything? It, it's so, so stupidly powerful on its face and of all the like silly things that have happened over this past year, like thinking back to Oko and we have a moment where like, I, I remember we did our top 10 cast and I, I had it pretty high, but I was like, this could certainly be by far the best card in this set, but right now I need to know a little bit more about it. I need to see it in play. And so it sits like in the middle of my list and we go to Omnath and I'm like, this card's pretty scary, but I want to put it in play and see how it goes and maybe understand it a little bit more. It's probably really good, but let's give it a chance first. But when we saw Uro, we're like, this is just stupid and the best card in the set, obviously. like It's so clearly beyond anything else you can be doing. And my patience for it has, has just waned at this point. I, I don't want to see this card anymore. Yeah, there there are like the occasional prints where you're just like, oh, this is this is like the best thing to be doing in modern, right? Yeah. And it's like, okay, well that's that's kind of silly. And then it's like, wait, is this is this good enough for legacy? And then you know that there's a problem. Yeah, and right? I think once upon a time is the other card where like it was the same thing where it's like, oh, this card is just stupid, but that's been unprinted from every format at this point, and it, it's time for Uro to do the same thing. Well, Uro Uro is still like seventy dollars for a while, so. <laughs> 
Yeah. I don't know. Probably got to wait for that to come down for people that to actually be sick of it. I will tell you, I have never purchased an Uro. So maybe this is my chance to like have my revenge on all the cards that have been decimated for whatever reason. And it probably just comes down to like not having an event to play with it. I'm sure I would have purchased it had it been the right thing to do. But when I didn't have an event and it's so obvious that this card is problematic and so much stronger than everything else, I have never pulled the trigger on ordering my Uro. So I do not own a single copy of this card. I own four. I will not be the least bit sad when it's banned because I've suffered enough for everyone. I own four because I played Team Wreck in a PTQ at some point. Okay. Dude, I, this might be your fault, right? Because like whenever you buy foils of a card, it gets banned. Yeah. So, so if I want to get this banned, I, I know what I have to do. And yeah. there's been talk of like raising up a collection. Please don't do that. I don't want you to raise a collection for me. If I'm going to make the stupid decision, I'll do it in and of myself. But people who really want Uro out of the format want me to pick up some really nice shiny Uros. I have, I think, one or two of the extended art ones. They look pretty good, Brian, just saying. It is a really nice looking card. I'll I'll give you that. But even like... Having seen the spooky Uro face come down so many times on Magic Arena, I, oh, I'm yeah, sick of that too. Like, that, well, that's, I don't love anything that's about the it. Worst. That's the worst. I always said in my head, the Uro comes down and goes, ooh, every <laughs> single time you enter the battlefield. God, just let me turn that crap off, please. It would be nice. I, I want to play Moto, but speed Moto, you know? So just yeah. give me give me the grays and the blacks and take the art away from my cards. I don't care, <laughs> you know? Ugly as possible, but snappy and efficient would uh, would be a big seller with me. No problem with that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many alternate art things. It might be easier for me to recognize the card if you just took all the art away. I don't know. Have you shared your, your laptop experience with the podcast yet? I know you told me. I, I feel like we did that <laughs> off air, though. I So I almost, I almost brought that up as part of the, like, take away this Uro animation crap. Yeah. Basically, what I used to do from, like, 2005 until arena came out was like sit on my couch laptop in my lap usually surrounded by cats but you know that sometimes i was sometimes i wasn't depending on my situation but i would be playing moto while like watching tv and hanging out and that's what i want to do with arena and the thing that is keeping me from interacting with Arena as much as I want to or should is the fact that I can't run it on any device that I have tried without it incinerating my lap. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I do. Graphics, lowest setting, like not full screen that, lowest resolution. Like I purchased a new laptop on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, whatever. It's all the same. And was like, surely, surely this can handle these, these memory leak issues, right? Nah, nah. Just it's, more, more fire lap. Yeah, it's, you know, liquid cooling blows it out the sides, blah, blah, blah. It's, well, it's going to be loud. I don't care. I'll turn the TV up, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. But my lap being on fire, that bothers me. And that is Arena's fault. Now, have, have we discussed a lap desk because I have a lap desk and I used it a lot when I was in law school because I would often try and do two things at once because if I didn't, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have done anything else. Like it was the only way I could still participate in conversations and watch television as if I was still working simultaneously. So I got myself, it's like a little 
I'm trying to think how to describe it. It's got almost like a pillow on the bottom of it, but it's yep. like, you know, bean type material. Yep. So it forms to your lap and then it's a desk with like a lip. So you just sit the laptop on that. Any interest in one of these? Uh, so the very first laptop I ever purchased was in like 2006, 2007, something like that. And towards the end of its lifespan was like 2011. And at that point, the fan had died and I needed to find some way to cool it. So I bought like one of those desks, right? Okay. That, that also had its own cooling system. And it's like, that worked That worked a little bit. It worked enough to like keep it alive so I could keep on grinding moto tickets or whatever. But the problem is, is that I want to do this on my couch. If I want to play on my PC, I can do that, right? But the, the problem is that I want to do this comfortably and having this like awkward, unwieldy desk thing on my lap kind of removes all of this from the equation. Not to mention the fact that like the reason that I want to be on my couch is because now I am surrounded by cats and I want to remain surrounded by cats. I want cats to be able to like, you know, curl up next to me and stuff, but they can't if I have this makeshift desk on, on the couch, you know? Okay. One more idea, and then we can talk about something besides your laptop on this podcast. What if on the couch you had some type of like arm with a well-supported desk on it where it's like you could move it up out of the way when you weren't using it, but also it's like – I'm thinking of almost if you think back to being in school and some of the desks were like foldable where you could like flip over the, the thing for your laptop. And again, like maybe this is more of a college thing than a high school thing, but like most of the lecture halls at my college, you would like flip up the arm and then it turned into a desk. So what if on your couch arm, you had some type of flipped up arm that came down, you got to set your laptop on it, do your thing. That seems like it would check the boxes, right? All right. I swear that we're going to talk about historic at some point, but first I I guess I have to give you a five minute explanation of what's actually going on. So again, comfort, right? I have... Uh, This big U-shaped couch, the left side of that is reserved for the cats. That's their spot. That's where where they tend to sleep and whatever. And the right side is where I sit, which means that the back is like on my right. So having like a fold down desk thing doesn't really work coming from that side. So I guess in theory, I could do it from the left. But like, you know, sometimes I sit on in like the middle with my legs crossed over because that's more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I could I could try and get like some weirdo desk set up. And my my former roommate had this problem where he would want to like basically do what I was doing. But instead of moto be painting minis mm-hmm. and he also recently acquired a bunch of cats. So like he'll sit with his legs in like a, a four shape. Right. And the cat will sit in the middle of the four and he couldn't really do that when he had like all these, you know, minis in his lap or whatever. His partner's sister is a woodworker. So they, they had this back and forth where he actually showed me pictures of this last night where he made a, a desk that has like these uh, slanty legs, right? So he could, it, 
it wouldn't just be like sitting on top of him. It would give him like some leeway to like move around underneath and stuff. And then the cat could still chill under the desk. Okay. So I, I feel like that sort of thing is like maybe doable, but like the slanty legs thing for comfort, I like the idea of, I don't think there's enough space on my couch to do that because I'm sitting the long way because I have bad circulation and my feet are always cold. So I keep my feet elevated and like covered with a blanket and stuff. Anyway. Uh, here's the here's the basic point. I, I think that the world is such that if you have a comfort problem, it's almost always addressable. Like, and, and it could be really small, almost meaningless things. Like, for instance, I stay down in my office, which is downstairs in my house, till pretty late. So all the lights in my house are off when I go upstairs, and I'm like, this is annoying. Sometimes I don't have my phone. I've tripped on the stairs before, so I put up little motion sensor lights on my staircase. So now I just walk up the stairs, and the staircase illuminates for me, and it's nice. And before, in like the the pre everything in the world is available to you at all times, times, I would have just suffered through that problem. And as I spend more and more time as a creature of convenience by the horrible fate capitalism has inflicted upon us all, I'm like, well, at least I need to get some benefit out of it. And that means all these really small, meaningless situations, I work really hard to find good solutions to. And in fact, like the the arm thing is something I thought of because I recently purchased an arm that attaches to my bed that holds my iPad directly in front of my stupid face while I fall asleep. So <laughs> that comes from me like Dude, and occasionally dropping shared- the iPad on myself. As someone who has shared multiple hotel rooms with you, like going to tournaments, doing commentary, stuff like that, and having you just like fall asleep in the other bed while watching anime on your laptop in the most awkward positions. Good for yes. you, man. Yes. I'm glad. Th- I'm this happy is exactly you. what motivated this this circumstance. I'm like, I need some solution to this. So I am sympathetic with your problem, and there's no question that Arena does something messed up to computers because it does it to mine too. Like I said, Arena is the only thing that makes my processor whine. But I have to believe there's some solution out there for you. And I just want to I want to collaborate with you and find it. I want to find the best way for you to be comfortable playing arena. So having ADHD, I'm like pretty restless, which is like why me just being like pigeonholed in by like a school desk type of thing doesn't really work. It's mm-hmm. like I, I need to like shift around left or right, whatever. And when I have like a you know, I've, I've used like a, a tiny surface for the last few years. Right. And so if I have this on my lap and the cat's like, yo, I want that part. Okay. I can move it up. Or if they're like, I want to sit, you know, on your chest or your stomach. Okay. I'll move it down. You know, it's like having something that is small and I can just like move over if I want to move and just get rid of it easily and store it easily. You know, these, these conveniences start going away when you're like, well, just build a giant desk or whatever. Yeah. You know, no, I understand. Or like, what about just like using a mouse and putting it on your television? Does that do anything? So that was something that my roommate suggested. But like yeah. part of the reason that I do it on the couch is that I'm watching something on the TV. Right. Okay. okay. Again, again, the ADHD, right. It's like, I can't just play arena. I need something else going on. So yeah, I, I would have almost certainly set my PC up in my living room somehow and figured that out. But the acoustics are bad and I won't be able to record the podcast in there. Right. Well, if we're going to just spend the podcast talking about how to decorate your house anyway, we probably won't be recording for much longer anyway. People will stop listening at some point. So it may not be a problem. You're right. Genius. Problem solved. Killed it. Anyway. That's game. Yeah, game. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Are there any questions devoted this week to my living room setup? (laughs) 
No, man, I'm sure there are problems out there even for like the computer side of things, but it's like I've Googled a bunch of stuff. I don't know what to do. All I know is that my lap is on fire. I play. I get to play like a match, and then I'm like, all right, got to turn off my computer before it explodes. And before I catch on fire. Dude, seriously, if, if I had this like elevated desk, right, where it's like, oh, you know, the cats have room to go under it and lay on my legs, and that's cool. I feel like, wouldn't, wouldn't the heat just like incinerate my cats? Like, I understand that the heat they is- might, They might like that, right? I mean, I don't know. Depending. Like, I haven't had a cat for a long time, but the, when I did have a cat, my cat loved to lay in front of like the floor grates for the heater yeah. and just like be warm. If you're if you're keeping it at like 70 or whatever, but not when arena is just like like toasting my legs, like it's not bearable. You know, arena is mean? not safe for cats. It turns out. Yeah, I well, dude, I don't believe it is, and I'm not going to risk it. So okay. I don't know. It's a lot, a lot of things, and I got a lot of you could call them excuses, but I would like to say like I've you know I've thought about this, and this is the reason why I don't necessarily want to do it. Right. No, I know this is a real issue for you. We have discussed this for an extended period of time and not found a solution to it. So, Listeners, please help. And, and don't be like, yo, buy this laptop. That's not going to work. It's not. Tried it. It's not. I, I believe the laptop I purchased is tippy top. So try again. Unbelievable. Tell me how to turn off Uro's stupid face and then, and then maybe we can make something work. See, this is another reason why we need to ban Uro is that I believe it would reduce the temperature of your Ooh. laptop and allow you to play more Magic. Ooh, check this out. What if I only play popper formats on Arena? Then there will be no stupid yeah, no mythic animations. animations. Maybe and that's you have it. to like, you have to ban pets. No pets are allowed. I don't play with pets anymore. I was excited about them in the beginning. Too hot. Too hot. Can't do it. Unreal. <laughs> All right, 20 minutes into this podcast. Anything else? Because I, I could keep going on about this for well, a we while. Should, we should probably talk about magic at some This point. is a thing that has plagued me for years, people. I'm not kidding. I know. I hope this was cathartic for you. I hope you got it off your chest a little bit. Oh, God. I can't even imagine what is going through people's minds right now who are listening to this. Where oh, they're, not, they're not listening anymore. Everyone, I guarantee everyone is just like, I have the solution, right? No, you don't. I guarantee you don't. <laughs> Stop right there. We'll see. We'll see Feel free to tweet week. your solutions at, at Cedric, a. Cedric a. Phillips on Twitter. Where all solutions go here on the Arena Deckless podcast. It's it's funny too because I think that this is the exact type of segment that Cedric would enjoy. True. Anyway, historic. Uro good. Saltai bad? No, I don't think that's the case. We were here last week. I was very critical of the decision to play Sultai. And I mean, I still think like in a dichotomous setting where one is correct and one is wrong, you should be playing four color. But I have come around to the fact that there is a purpose to Sultai. And I actually think that purpose is just like being a little bit better in the mirror. Like you're basically pre-sideboarded in the mirror. And if this deck continues to pick up speed, as it should, because I do believe four color is the best deck in the format, then you can start making a pretty good case for Soul Tide because you're only giving up in a few spots and you're giving up in spots that four color mid-range is doing its part to keep down. So if you're trying to predict winner's metagame in like a smaller field tournament, then I think you can make a pretty good case for Soul Tide. And, and maybe that's what happened with the pilots who chose to play Soul Tide in the Zendikar Rising Championship. You could sell me on that being a very valid reason. Now, as we come to this weekend, where we deal with a more 
open set of circumstances. We have the arena open. We have the SCG Tour online, both of which are historic this week. And I don't think the fields are small enough where it makes sense to try and make that hard read to say, oh, X percentage of the field will be four-color mid-range. Because even in this tournament, which was a smaller field, we're only looking at 20% four-color mid-range. And I don't think you'll hit those numbers when it comes to the SCG events or the arena open events. So here, I am strongly suggesting that if you believe in Euro, as I do, and I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm like, this is a play it until they take it away from you situation until someone shows me otherwise. So I, I think you just have to play a deck with Uro if you want to maximize your chances in any of these events. But I would be playing four-color mid-range if this was the strategy I chose to employ because I, I just think the percentage points are too valuable against John Sacrifice Goblins if you're playing in an open metagame. Sacrifice decks were a larger portion of the tournament than Saltai decks. Yes. They were very popular in the, the SCG online tour stuff. So I think that right now you're still supposed to be playing Yasharn in these open tournaments. Because there, there, there's also like Goblin stuff and random other decks that you tag, right? Uh, so I would do that. I, I agree with you like long term. I mean, we even talked about this a little bit last week where like Sultai could in theory beat, you know, Rakdos and Goblins without Yasharn. You know, it's like you just need like a sweeper instead and like some additional spot removal, whatever. Uh, so that is doable. It's just, it's easy mode, right? When you have that card. And especially when, I mean, we'll get to this, I'm sure, but like the sacrifice decks still aren't playing ways to kill you, Sharn. Yep. But yeah, the, the, the Salty decks did really well overall. And I'm kind of surprised by that because I do think that these decks are like, you know, pretty mopey and unfocused and whatever. But again, a lot of it has to come down to what everyone else is bringing to the table and how they're trying to fight you. And I think that there were some people who actually figured out how to uh, kind of farm the Saltai decks. And then a lot of people were just like, well, I'll beat everyone who's not Saltai. And it's like, well, that's a, a very large portion of the tournament, you know? Yeah. No, so, I, I agree with your read entirely. And I, I think that, going forward like you said you can make this case but why that i mean that's the that's the thing you always have to answer is why do i feel it's so necessary to take the edge in this matchup and go down everywhere else and i, I can't come up with a good reason like you have to have a very specific metagame before you believe that to be the case right yeah and so you said it perfectly no hard reads right mm -hmm. you're playing in these open tournaments that are going to have a little bit of everything, try and be prepared for everything. Obviously, that's a tall ask, but like you don't have to make huge, grand, sweeping sacrifices in order to fight colorless ramp or whatever, but just like hedge against it a little bit. And Yasharn for Historic is a great hedge. Yeah. Now, unlike the Great Henge, but very similar. Yes. So I think that the, the more you see Yasharn in play, the more you understand how much it actually does. And you find surprising situations all the time where you're like, oh, Risharn actually matters here too. And again, broad metagame. And also, I think this is amplified specifically when it comes to the arena open. Everyone wants to participate in the arena opens. They don't come around all that often. They're in client. So if you're an arena player, you don't have to go through the additional hurdles of registering for the SCG tour. And I know like it's not hard to do that stuff, but... Convenience matters a lot when it comes to, to user 
uh, engagement and what type of people are going to be participating. And I think whereas the SCG tour speaks a lot to the traditional magic tournament grinder, I think the arena open speaks to all arena users. And we've talked a bunch on this cast about how there's this new class of arena user who kind of engages with magic as a video game and has a very different take on metas and gets information from other places and just want to be able to participate in this event. And that means decks that don't require a lot of wild cards are going to be overrepresented to some extent, I think. And Yeah, no mythics, no animations. Yeah, so Jerry won't be on fire. And also there'll be more mono red than maybe there should be. And, you know, maybe something like Azorius Auras only relies on a few rares. So maybe that's overrepresented. And these piles of mythics that uh, comprise the four color mid-range decks, I don't think there'll be as many as there, there specifically should be, given how powerful the deck is and how far above the field it seems to be. Like we're talking 70, 57.6% win percentage for four color mid-range at Zendikar Rising Championship. That's really good for a deck that is a known quantity that everyone is saying, this is probably the best thing in the format. So you've identified it as the best thing in the format and it stays the best thing in the format. That's how you know a really powerful deck. It's easy for a deck to come up and put up a good win rate one week. We saw it in standard. You know, There's a constantly rotating cast in standard of a deck that puts up a really, really strong performance and then falls off the face of the earth the next week because decks adapt to it and they account for it. And then that deck comes back in the future. We're seeing it with Rogues right now, where Rogues was a very poor choice when the entire format was focused on beating Rogues. And there were chain web arachnids everywhere and tons of oxes. And just even the existence of the Rakdos Sacrifice deck, which was basically just made to farm Rogues. When all that stuff goes away, Rogues can come back. But if a deck is so good as to be the best deck, I think it survives that kind of pressure. And we're seeing four-color midrange survive that kind of pressure. Yeah, over and over again, too. It's not like this is just an isolated incident. Right. Ugh. Is there a better way to be doing what people are already doing in regards to Saltire or Color? I think every mode of Growth Spiral Uro deserves consideration. There'll be a moment where you're like you're supposed to do it with red cards and play like a red mid-range deck, and a moment where you're supposed to be more focused on white cards and and play Bant or something along those lines. But it's really hard. If you're trying to prepare for as much as possible, it's really hard to pass on the efficiency of Thoughtseize and the fact that it's just good everywhere. If there's ever a time when that's not the case, then maybe you can make a case that you're supposed to get away from Sultai. But as long as that card is so, so powerful, it's it's the glue that holds Historic together in a lot of ways. I'm glad it's part of the format, but it also means that you're super incentivized to be in the color black. And I think a stink- extinction event is a big part of it too, especially as long as Uro remains popular. Having just a way to answer that card cleanly is very, very important. Yeah, I mean, you could you could make the argument that you could find a lot of that stuff in white also. Then you're playing white, and that's its own, <laughs> its own set right. of problems when it comes to Historic. Uh, I mean, Teferi's really good, man. I don't know what to tell you. Teferi's not bad. I wouldn't go as far as very good when it has to be compared against things like Thoughtseize and Uriel. But I, I think it's like a reasonable choice, but not on the same power scale. All right. Let me let me just say this real quick. Brad Nelson and Andrea Mangucci played a Doom Whisperer in their sideboard because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's a threat in the mirror that can't get Aether Gusted. Now... Mm-hmm. 
this gets like negated and disputed or whatever, but like Teferi can fill that role, right? It's just like having an additional five drop, you know, you know, one or two copies or whatever, that is a very significant threat in mirror matches. Yeah. Uh, we, saw, inter- we saw some people do that with four color also. Right, right. I think that's a reasonable approach. Uh, there is something to be said for a threat that actually kills your opponent and does so very quickly, especially in like a Shockland metagame. And, you know, you play a lot of games where your opponent has put themselves down to 14. So you're looking at just a couple swings from that Doom Whisperer on the battlefield. It's, it's almost easier because there is a lot of catch up potential in mirror match situations. In, Basically, against all decks that have access to either gust, they do have these snowball-y type threats, not to mention their own Uros. So I thought Doom Whisperer was a really cool inclusion. I, I like the way it also like fuels future Uros as part of its game plan if you manage to pull f- pretty far ahead. So I'm a big fan of that card just flat out. I, I think it's super powerful and has been underrepresented in every format throughout its existence. But to your point, there's other ways to do it, and some of them will be right in some moments. Right now, I would go do Moisture over Teferi, though. Dude, I don't, I don't know, I don't you know if I can it? agree with that. <laughs> okay, that's fine. The the thing I like about Teferi is that it like it's it just solves a lot of problems too. You know, whereas Doom Whisperer being a six six, you can still get outmoded by like Crisis and stuff like that. I mean, obviously you can, you can, you know, Teferi can too or whatever. But like you're you're probably gaining a significant advantage with Teferi versus Doom Whisperer, but. I just think like surveilling at a cost of life can also generate some of those same advantages in this deck because you do play so powerfully from the graveyard and just having more Uro fuel matters a lot. Like being able to routinely bring back Uros and not to mention just finding more Uros, all that stuff is important. So a a Doom Whisperer unchecked in play when you're not facing pressure kind of is like Demonic Tutor over and over. And that's a really powerful effect. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. It's just like, if you get to untap with it, you basically are demoniking like every turn. Like, you know, you're just going to find a negate or a thought seize or something to right. maintain your position, basically. And obviously, you don't get to keep doing that forever. Like, Uro obviously helps with it. But, like, it, it kills them quickly. You know, you should have them dead in three turns for sure with protection, probably. So, it I is so. it is good for that stuff. But it's like, I don't know, Teferi does a lot of that same stuff, too. It does. It's a question of like which can do it faster, which can do it cleaner, and which lines up better. And like your mention of negate, I don't think that's something you can just hand wave away. Like negate is an important card in a lot of these situations. Yeah, of course. Being able to dodge that is is another important factor. And then mystical dispute too. All these things matter a lot. I think for the most part, people are not bringing in disputes in the mirror because there's not a lot of blue cards and the games go relatively long. But, you know, a lot of these, maybe not the, the arena stuff, but like the SCG stuff is like open deckless, right? So you get to see if your opponent right. has a bunch of Narsets and Teferis and you want to bring mm-hmm. in disputes. But I don't know, for for the most part, like you look at this breakdown, it's like dispute doesn't even look like a very good card. It's certainly fallen off its peak. I, I will give you that. And I, I think like you saw some of that with the prevalence of Narset in the four color sideboards. That was often a big part of the plan. And I, I think that's born of the fact that Dispute is not as good as it used to be, and you're able to leverage that a little bit more. So it, it also speaks to why something like Azorius Control can play a good game again, is that they're not being hard targeted by this one mana counterspell that everyone has in their main deck a lot of the time. So. Right. All right, last last thing. Instead of Doom Whisperer, instead of Teferi, you know what I would want to play? Tiny Bones? <laughs> no, that's what you would want to play. Oh, uh, okay. If you think about it, I, I think you can get there. 
I mean, the, the first guy that came to mind was Tireless Tracker. I know that's not in historic, but like you're looking that, for something like that. That would be a good one. Yeah. I have a feeling you're looking for something like that, some kind of green threat that uh, generates card advantage. You do like Elder Gargaroth. No, so fine. Black Threat because of Ethercrest. Because you wanted that Ethercrest. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, th- so they did like black five mana creature, right? Because it it gets around a lot of the random stuff. I guess like people are playing Disdainful Struck now or whatever. But I've been playing a lot of Rakdos decks, and in my sideboards, I have a lot of Argul's Bloodfasts, and I feel like people just forgot about that card. Okay, it's a strong card for sure. Oh, it's just it's really good, and no one's playing it, and I don't get it. I'm I'm thinking about like circumstances where it gets punished but they're really like if if doom whisper is good so is argos Bloodfast, right like you believe you can leverage the life loss of those cards to meaningful conclusions and i i think the land is also actually going to be a really big deal as well yeah because well you're talking about like oh extinction event answers uro or whatever and it's like well not anymore the, yeah the uro feeds the blood fast and if you want to you can transform this thing you get an extra land and then you just get protection from exile things too yeah if if the games actually come down to Stuff like that mattering, which it usually doesn't once you've drawn like eight cards. But right, yeah, card card is nice. I highly no, recommend. This is that this is a good it. call. And Argul's Bloodfast has snuck its way into a lot of my historic decks over the past few months, and almost always overperforms. So I see yeah. where you're coming from. Yep, and th- dude, there's just so many turns of so many games where people are like you know cycling and then doing nothing with their mana, and it's just like this is this is the thing that. You just bury people, you know? Right, right. Card is great. Anyway, we can talk about Sacrifice now. Okay. What happened in this tournament with the Sacrifice decks? Because you and I did a whole show letting people know some of the flaws with Sacrifice decks and the way we saw things going. And then people just kind of showed up with decks from three months ago. and Yeah, the last tournament. Didn't do all that well. Uh, I mean, like well, Recto Sacrifice was okay. 52.6% win percentage. John Sacrifice, which was the one you and I were really upset with. We had a very hard time understanding how Trail of Crumbs plus Corvold was supposed to actually go over the top of Uro. The answer is it didn't. Uh, it won 33% of its matches against four color midrange, and I am not the least bit surprised. But it also didn't beat Sultai midrange either. So it's not even like Yasharn punished them. They just got wrecked by being a smaller midrange deck. And I, I think that was a pretty obvious conclusion. Well, even aside from that, I think there's a couple other things going on where a lot of the decks that I saw were main decking gusts, which I think is a good call, but mm-hmm. was maybe something that people weren't expecting because gust, for example, is not really that good against like Rectos and like goblins was kind of on the decline it seemed like and there are all these other decks that exist that gust is just basically blank against so if you were not expecting a lot of ether gusts i could see how maybe you're like oh well this corvold kind of does the doom whisperer thing but a little bit more efficient right and that just ended up not being the case yeah it did not pan out at all and uh i, I think i saw Martin tweet that he felt very hard punished by Ethergust. I have never felt so owned by an otherwise medium card Ethergust in any tournament before. Buy it. It, it seemed like an excellent call for this event. Yeah. Uh, other thing is a lot of these decks did not have a lot of ways to kill Yashar in the 75, and a lot of them had zero main deck. And 
wild. Last wild, week, wild place last week, I was like, okay, you can play Thoughtseize main deck, and that's enough of a cover, and then sideboard all the Chandras and Noxious Grass and stuff like that. And given the numbers from this tournament where Sultai, or I guess, you know, four color, is fairly widely represented, I think it is time where you need a main deck answer to it. And I've been trying to, you know, tinker around with the list, get some Chandra's main deck, still keep the deck sort of like low to the ground and cohesive and everything. And it's tough, but like you have to do it. Right. Yeah. I, I just think it's past the point of like, oh, we'll, we'll deal with this in sideboard games. It's, it's just too much of the metagame at this point. And, you know, again, you can make the case that that'll change for the arena open and you can, you can play a little thinner there and only go to the sideboard. And I, I think that's a really good call because to be able to play your shard in your deck, you have to have basically every card that's ever been printed on Magic Arena because your deck is all mythics and rares and you've probably been in the game for a while. And I, I, I don't think you'll see as much four color in the arena open as you should. So in that circumstance, if you want to play a little thinner, I get it. But going into this tournament, uh, I, I think it's kind of indefensible. I think you really need to be aware of a card that just hard punished your entire game plan. Yeah. And the other thing is no one, I'm pretty sure no one registered Bowman Courier. I did not see a Bowman Courier among the list. That is correct. Mistake. I, I don't know. I Someone someone tweeted at you and I uh, how they were playing against the, the champions list, the Azorius control list on uh, Arena, and they led with turn one Bowman Courier and they Game. soloed them. And they were just like, yeah, it was easy. Like that was enough to do it. So uh, if you expect Azorius to pick up, get those Bowman Couriers in your list. Kind of just do it anyway, though. And it's not, yeah, it's good. not even about Azorius control. It's just, you know, there, there are some matchups like Goblins. Okay, yeah, you side it out because, you know, you side into like a little bit more of a mid-range deck against them anyway, and they have a bunch of blockers. So it's not ideal there. You can definitely get draws where you clear the way and then cash it in for three cards. You know, and it's it's basically never dead because you can always cash it in for a card. And I don't know, like auras, maybe it's like a little sketchy there because that's not really what you're trying to do or whatever. But dude, for the most part, it's it's just really good. Uh, Mayhem Devil obviously is like, it's a, a little weird in mirror matches too. It can be really good. It can be really bad. But mm -hmm. it's it's better than like the Stitcher suppliers nonsense that people are doing. I agree with you. So I don't know. It's like you look at these numbers and, you know, Rakdos, uh, 53% basically rounding up, did poorly against four color, defeated Sultai. The Jun decks all lost to Sultai, which is worth noting. And then Rakdos mm -hmm. did poorly against Azorius and coin flip against Demir lost to colorless ramp. And it's like, well, those are matchups that get solved or at least helped a lot by Bomek Courier and, uh, all this data is coming from uh, MTG underscore data data. Is it data or data? I think it's data. Your choice. Dealer's no, choice. I got yelled at for this at one point. No, I, I really think you can say it either way. I think I got yelled at. I think it's supposed to be data, but MTG underscore data on Twitter. They put all these handy infographics together for us. I feel like we used to be more accepting of regional dialects. And maybe this is because I get yelled at all the time for this. So I want to go off about it. But I don't like, think it's regional though. This, this is literally just like data and data are different things. Maybe you're right in this circumstance. I don't know. There's so many words that are produced 
pronounced well pronounced is not a real way to pronounce that yeah word. now we're just making uh, stuff up right <laughs> there's so many words that are pronounced in different ways depending on where you are in the country that i'm going to call data data one of those as well and, and give you a pass on this one yeah i, I know that you're gonna give me a pass man i'm not worried about you i'm worried about the an easy judge when it comes to this stuff the the twitter homies out there who are very yeah. quick to correct anyway that is that is true the data it just it makes more sense for me to say it that way, so that's how I think it's wrong. Uh, the, yeah, the data suggests that Rakdos could be improved in a lot of different areas. Bowman Courier does that. Chandra main deck would help a little bit in that regard. I think you're going to be a slight underdog to Collected Company Mirrors, but I, I just wouldn't care no about that. Anyway. Yeah, no yeah I, don't worry about it. Th- there's so much inherent fail rate in their deck that I just don't even think that it really matters. So if I wanted to play like a normal deck, I would still be down to play Racto Sacrifice this weekend. Basically the same list that we talked about a few weeks ago? Yeah, I would, I would get a couple Chandra's main, but that's about it. Okay. Do you think this deck is good going forward? I, I think it's a fine choice. I'm just at the point where like it's it's Euro time. I, I feel that strongly right. about the card. And I, I think you you can't really talk me off of it. But... If for whatever reason you you can't play Uro, I, I think Racto Sacrifice is still a fine choice. I mean, I, I technically can. It's going to light my lap on fire every time I right. cast you it. Have a, you have a good reason not to play it. You don't want to nah. be set on fire, and that's totally defensible. Dude, if I, if I had to play 10 matches or whatever, there's no way in hell I'm playing with a laptop. I would, I would play on PC, which... Fair enough. You know, we're, you're talking about you know, ease of play and it being convenient and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, it's, that's not convenient for me to like just sit in my office for 10 matches in a row and not really do anything else. So I'm either going to play and be kind of miserable or just not play and be pretty happy. A tough choice when you put it that way. <laughs> I don't know which one you should go with. I don't know. I, I kind of want to play, but. I've, I've had the itch too. I have a feeling I will probably end up participating in the arena open, at least to some small extent, just because it's very convenient. And I, I like that. And even if I lose interest in the middle of it, I don't even feel that bad about it because it's just kind of on my schedule. Yeah. Uh, goblins did pretty bad except for Autumn. Feels like this is always the case when it comes to Goblins. It's either Autumn or Emma doing well with it and everyone else just fails. And look, their list tends to be really good and beyond everyone else's so that tracks it was good um, the herald's horn looked really nice absolutely i i having watched autumn play their matches i i can't imagine playing without herald's horn in the deck quite frankly it was so key in so many games so i i get why they had success i just think that this deck will continue to float around these type of percentages it's really hard for it to ever be the runaway choice because it is such a focal point of the format and it doesn't have the same characteristics that a card like Oro does, where it can just overcome anything you try and do based on raw rate. It's about synergies and it's about putting together a battlefield. And there's certainly ways to account for that. You know, we talked about how control decks are playing main deck, Grafdigger's Cage, and Yasharn is doing something. And all of these are main deck inclusions. They're not sideboard cards where you get a huge edge in game one and then you have to fight your way through games two and three. There's some decks that are just prepared for you. And it's really hard for me to say it's going to be the correct choice. But obviously for some people it is. And you understand all your plans and matchups and you know exactly where to divert from stock lists. I I do think you can still find an edge with goblins, but 
that's not going to be the right call for me going forward. I'm very confident about that. Yeah, I mean, the the better the backup plans get for goblins, like the less players are reliant on resolving Muxus, I think the stronger the deck gets. And Herald's Horn yep. goes a long way, just like maxing Krenko's and War Chiefs and stuff like that also goes a pretty long way. So I think the decks have gotten better for sure. But these these numbers are scary. They're not good. They look They're bad. not good. Yeah, it's just the consequence of, again, everyone accounting for the deck. And I don't know, I mean, what was your read going into this tournament? You think Goblins was high on the priority list? It, it felt like it was sliding a little bit, but not absent from people's mindsets. Like, it's it's not like going back a couple months ago where it took time for even things like Witch's Vengeance to get into sideboards. I mean, you're not leaving home without some kind of countermeasures to Goblins at this point. Well, so generally I can tell what direction people are going in when I'm just like looking at my deck list and being like, well, I want to squeeze this into the sideboard and I haven't played against goblins in a long time. And like the matchup's like not that bad. So I can shave, which is vengeance. And, you know, once you kind of get a feel for like, well, I'm doing this. So a lot of other people are probably doing it too. Then you can make a judgment call of like, well, I think a lot of people are just going to shave their sideboard hate. And mm. I, th- I think a lot of people did do that. But you know, people still kind of beat up on goblins anyway. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I, I think the format is just a little hostile right now, and I'd, I'd rather pick a good spot for goblins than try and just jam through it. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that too. I mean, the deck is is certainly powerful. It's like doing one of the most broken things in the format. But I think there needs to be some time for people to move away from like all the hate first before you can actually bring it back. Seconded. Azorius Auras. I thought this might be one of the decks where people undervalue it and then maybe it has like a pretty reasonable showing, but I think people did undervalue it and their decks just naturally beat up on it anyway. Yeah, what happened here? Because I was pretty impressed playing against Azorius Auras and that's not like large-scale focused testing trying to understand exactly how good the deck is. It's just like me playing something else, running into it, and being like, well, this deck looks pretty good right now. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean they beat me or I lose a lot to it. It's just like it seems to have all of its ducks in a row and a very coherent plan, and I understand why it's problematic in some spots, but it turns out it's problematic in no spots. Uh, just not favorable matchups here against really anything. Yeah, I mean, you're you're trying to stick a two mana card draw engine in a format where like Saltai is the best deck, and they have. Yeah, how much does the addition of Fatal Push to the format really what has changed this deck's quality? Eh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think like oh, a bunch of Fatal Push decks have showed up, and it's not like the Sacrifice decks or Goblins are you know playing a bunch of Fatal Pushes or anything. I don't think there's necessarily like more decks playing spot removal. It's just that Sultai is the best deck, it is the winningest deck, and they have Thoughtseize plus spot removal. Sacrifice decks have like Priest and Claim the Firstborn, stuff like that. Mm. So I think people are just inherently good against you, and there's not a whole lot you can do. One of the win percentages that's kind of baffling to me, and all of this is small sample size, so please don't take too much from it, but like a 16.7 win percentage against Goblins. Like if if you can't find a way to set up your deck so that you can keep pace with a deck that's mostly not interacting with you. Like you just get to do your thing. 
at the same time, obviously, you let them do their thing. If their thing is that much better than what you're doing, you really have to ask some hard questions about why you're choosing to do this. Like in a vacuum, if you're just going off, Goblins does it better. So what are you supposed to be praying against? You're not more resilient than they are, especially as the dick gets refined and it does things like uh, Harold's Horn and, you know, just various sources of card advantage. It, there's there's not much space left for Azorius Auras. And it's a deck that works really well in principle. Like, I think all of its pieces are good. I thought it would have a better performance of this tournament, but the results are just showing me it, it's a worse version of something else. And those are the type of decks that just fall out eventually. Right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you compare kind of like the nut draws of Auras to Goblins. And it's like you untap with SRAM or Spirit Dancer. You say you have three one-drop auras, right? And you get to attack that turn, you draw some cards, and it's like, okay, yeah, you're set up pretty well for like a big turn four, and goblins can actually just kill you on turn three. Yeah. So yes, so what are, you, what are you doing? Don't have an answer for you. Not playing auras, actually, is my answer. That's, yeah. that's what I'll be doing going forward. Uh, Azorius Control won the tournament. A lot of people poo-pooing on this deck. I think that it is solid. Like, card advantage plus pile of counter spells is pretty good against the Sultai decks. And then you have things like Wrath of God to help you against sacrifice and stuff. So like overall, I think this is a pretty solid choice, honestly. I think so too. And I, th- I think the way the champions deck was built is very telling. You have to do some things that are, maybe they don't check the boxes of the traditional way to build control decks. There's things like maxing sensor and playing main deck graph diggers cage, which I, I think will give some control purists a bit of pause but when you think about the way the format set up it tracks I, I think it was just a very well built deck for this event and there is space for this archetype to succeed but it is it's not the four color mid-range space where this deck is just good no matter what and if azorius control is to become the top thing it will be punished i mean we're already talking about like a very easy way to punish in racto sacrifice right just play your bomac couriers in the matchup flips on its head. It becomes actually really easy. And if you look at the matchup percentages here, small sample size again, 33% win rate against Jun Sacrifice and 60% against Rakdos Sacrifice. So you can maybe take away one of those favorable matchups pretty cleanly with the addition of a single card. And I don't think Jun Sacrifice is going to be around much longer. So maybe that's a point in Azorius Control's favor. But it still seems like all the tools are available to other decks to account for what Azorius Control is doing. Uh, what about Demir? Because Demir put up pretty good numbers against uh, the Saltai decks, at least. Incredibly, incredibly small sample size. Uh, only yeah, four Demir Control decks in, in the tournament. Good numbers against four color. As you said, I think there's something to Narset against four color. And it's why we saw it in a lot of the four color sideboards for the mirror. It's a powerful effect. And then amping it up with the addition of commit memory torrential gear hulk you you have a real plan against them they can't just go on forever because you you do limit how much you're going to let them grow so i like it there there were some things about the just overall construction of the deck that really gave me pause and it's like playing shadows verdict in your narset deck doesn't make a ton of sense to me but like i guess once narset has done its work you can reposition and you do have to find some way to control Uro. So I half get it. I, I half think that if you have to build in such a conflicted manner, maybe it's just not a deck that has the tools it needs to be a really cohesive thing. But as far as picking your spots, if, if this matchup percentage bears out and it's actually this favored 
against four color mid range, 83.3% win percentage. There's something there if we're just all in on the idea of four color mid range being the best deck. Right. And then you just hope that, like, yeah, you're doing things that are weaker than what everyone else is doing, but you can hang, you know, your cards aren't that much worse than your opponents. Your plan isn't that bad. So, yeah, you take your really good win percentage against the best deck, and then you have like 40, 45s against everyone else. Yeah. Again, I would not do this in an open field. Like, I I don't think this is the correct choice for uh, the arena open, but small field, certainly it bears some consideration. Yeah. And then we come to uh, Colorless Ramp, which is not a real deck. So I'm just going to cross that off and write Paradox Engine because I think this is real. Kai played this in the tournament, and I, I I remember he started 3-0. I don't know how he like actually finished in the second portion. I think he did really poorly in the standard portion of the tournament, but uh, pretty well in the historic portion, if I remember correctly. Okay, so his deck was uh, a Sultai version of this deck that could combo with like Emery, Paradox Engine, and Kinnon, a bunch of other different stuff, right? And uh, today I was watching Caprin stream a Simic version of this deck with Karn and, you know, Karn gets uh paradox engine. It's a pretty good threat against basically everyone. It's one of the best cards to be playing. If you're going to play best of one, at least for the first part of the arena open this weekend. And it also just allowed him to go off from such a low base, which was what really impressed me because was the card ancestral statue. Yes. Classic ancestral statue. Classic, classic. It's this this four mana card artifact that uh, ETB you bounce a non land permanent you control. Which when you have paradox engine cannon make it a bunch of mana you can just bounce this a bunch of times either make like infinite storm or infinite mana if you have enough at the end of it you can bounce your own card if you need to replay it get eighth of flux reservoir play that play another spell kill your opponent right so. It really doesn't take a lot. And there's just like all this man acceleration, all this card advantage. And, you know, people people don't have like the artifact hate really that they need to keep you super low. And they have some stuff that's like kind of annoying, like Graph Digger's Cage, but the Planeswalkers sort of get around that. And you don't need Emery to actually be able to kill people. So I don't know. This deck was really impressive. It seems kind of miserable to play um on arena but it does look really good and i think i think the the colorless ones are not great but something simic related is going to be very good yeah you started explaining this deck to me and uh i was basically in the moment you put all the pieces together uh first of all you get to play uro so uh, that's a huge point in the deck's favor i think with emery which is not bad yeah and you'll you'll just win some games like that like that is a powerful enough effect effect that it will carry you, but also the addition of Karn, really, really smart and just allows you to so easily combo off in so many situations. I don't want to get ahead of what's going on here, but all of these pieces put together, like this feels close to Historic's KCI. Like it does a lot of things really well. Yeah, It has combo draws. It's very resilient. And it also has something that KCI didn't really have, which is a very real beatdown plan on the back of Uro. Like you can just attack and kill people and that'll happen over and over. So there's something here and I will be spending some time over the next few days looking at this deck list, thinking about ways to maybe 
tune it a little bit and just really evaluating how it lines up with what's going on because it feels like something the metagame is not prepared for right now. Yeah, I don't I don't know what happened to my memory because I just assumed that Kai's deck was a Karn deck and it wasn't. It can only really kill by fully going off and winning with Jace. And then I was I was watching the stream today that had Karn. I'm just like, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. So like what is actually different from his and, and Kai's list? And I looked and it's like, oh, Kai just didn't have Karn. It seems ludicrous to not have Karn in your deck. I think especially once you add Ancestral Statue, and I'm I'm not going to beat up anyone for not knowing Ancestral Statue is a real magic card, because I certainly had to Google it immediately. But like like you said, you are able to generate the combo from a very small amount of resources at this point. Dude, I thought I thought Karn for Paradox Engine would be good enough. <laughs> you know, like Maybe true, yeah. And and now you yeah, the ancestral statue thing, I was like, okay, yeah, dope. I I did not know that was a card, but yeah, having that sort of effect makes a ton of sense and made the deck look really, really good. As far as exciting news goes, I, th- I think this is the most exciting development in Historic right now. This is the one with the potential to maybe shake some things up fundamentally to the format, at least until it was bad. Yeah, also worth noting that this was a Gigantha deck where I don't think that the Gigantha is useless. It's a high praise from you. I don't think you've ever said that before. I mean, dude, if if there was a Castle Vantress in his in his deck list, <laughs> I would not be talking about this deck. Maybe true. Straight up. But uh, yeah, the Gigantha, it's like, eh, is that necessary? Maybe you could play like a Seagate Restoration or something. And it's like, no, nah, the, the Gigantha actually mattered a decent amount. Like you said, there's like a, kind of a beatdown backup plan. And Gigantha with Paradox Engine kind of did some stuff with like Midnight Clock. And I don't know, it actually looked reasonable. I buy it. I'm a bigger fan of Gigantha than you are, so it, it's an easier sell for me. I've been pretty happy casting it in a bunch of situations, but here especially, it, it seems pretty clear that even if it's not necessarily ramping you all that effectively, I, I think you're not giving up anything by playing it. There's nothing you have your eyes on that will actually materially benefit your deck. In in best of three, I think it's close because you do want like a bunch of Ether gusts and like some sort of counterspell. I think metallic rebuke might be the best one, and you know things along those lines where like the sideboard slot actually matters. But for for best of one, I was having a tough time filling out my sideboard with fifteen artifacts. You know, so Gigantha okay. Gigantha can very easily get in there and like maybe like a second sorcerer spyglass in case you want to wish for a second one. You know, sure. Thing, sure. Like things like that, you have a lot of freedom to do in best of one. And then obviously you got to figure out what to do for day two, but whatever. Anything else you really liked out of the wishboard? I was very skeptical about Karn into Sky Sovereign. And that actually looked really good to me too. I told you. Yeah. We did this a few weeks ago. I know. I, it just comes up a lot. And I, I know like Sky Sovereign is not a clean answer, but... It does its work for sure. I mean, especially that it crews pretty well in this deck as well. Like you have ways to suit it up. And I, I think that's a big point in its favor. I th- So, okay. The the thing that like my brain didn't put together is that if you carned it, it would get the trigger. Yep. Yes, it does. I, for, for whatever reason, I was just like, yeah, you need to crew. And then the thing gains the ability or whatever. No, make it a a big dummy with the plus ability of Karn and it's still killing something on the attack. Yeah, so that, that, dude, that changes everything. If, if like, Karn crews it effectively, then it's like, yeah, what are we doing here? Obviously, this is kind of absurd. It's it's also just, like, 
again, compact as far as the kill condition goes, right? Like the fact that you're crewing it and getting it with the same card means that Karn is now a beatdown card, just like yeah. uh, these other weird cards in your deck where like Uro is supposed to ramp you, but also it's a beatdown card and Gigantha is supposed to be there to interact with Paradox Engine, but also it's a beatdown card and unlocks all these backdoor kills for you. Yeah. I mean, Sky Sovereign was like killing Narsets, which was the thing that really impressed me. So. Awesome, yeah. I, I think it's just good enough just based on that. But then it being able to very easily attack and like kill Nissa the following turn or something is, is pretty nice. Yep. So yeah, if, if you want to play a little spice, I recommend, you know, looking uh, at Caprins' streams. Uh, he might have posted on Twitter or something. I don't know. But Decklist is out there. Feel free to go find it. Yeah, I have found it. It is being loaded up in my arena queue, as we speak, <laughs> which means we're getting close to the point in the podcast where we want to go play games. And I think that means question time. Is that correct? Yes. All right, Gerald. I, I have a good question for us this week. Well, I shouldn't say I have a good question. We have been provided a good question by our lovely friends in our Discord, uh, who are so kind as to support our efforts to make this podcast every week. Thank you, patrons. Appreciate you all a lot. This question, though, comes from a repeat offender on this section of the podcast, and it comes from the Squirrel Master, who's been here before. Squirrel Master wants to know, if the aliens that are supposedly in communication with the U.S. and Israel showed up and asked you to pick any two decks from MTG's history to battle, resulting in the most fun gameplay, which decks would you choose? Okay, I have I have some questions of my own. You kind of You kind of just like... Blew past the first part. Oh, are you not familiar with the aliens who are presently communicating with our government? No, <laughs> no, I am not. Okay, so maybe other people are not. I'll, I'll give you some background information. There is a news story that came out this week, and I believe it's a former head of the Israeli space program who came out and said that the Galactic Federation, which is a group of aliens, I suppose, of course. Uh, have been in contact with world governments for quite a period of time now. Apparently, Donald Trump knew and was on the verge of uh, telling everyone, but the aliens asked him not to because they feel like it's too soon to reveal their presence. Uh, they want to kind of wait for humans to sort their shit out a little bit before they put themselves into the limelight and welcome us into the galactic community. Now, I, I understand you may have follow-up questions to this. I, I do. I, okay. very, I very much so do, yes. Okay. Uh, so just I, I want to get your temperature on this. What is your initial reaction to this disclosure from the former Israeli space minister? Who, by the way, uh, just like a little bit more background on him, apparently is like a professor these days and uh, fairly well-respected as a professor and basically just said, I don't really have much time left. I don't have much of a career left. And if I said this 20 years ago, no one would have taken me seriously. So I'll just say it now. Also quite old. So I, I don't want to be like ageist and suggest that all old people should be subject to uh, disbelief always. But certainly when you reach uh, the age of like 80 something, as I believe this gentleman is, there is a potential for some mental infirmity to start to creep in. So I, I do think that has to be contemplated. But still, what what is your reaction to this information? I'm not buying it. I wasn't buying it even before you brought up the blatant ageism. <laughs> I'm okay. kidding. I'm kidding. So 
you're like, you're these aliens, right? Yes. And you're like, wow, humanity is screwed. We should not intervene with them until they figure their shit out. But in the meantime, we'll, we'll tell Trump all of this. Yeah. So the one thing, here's the things I'm willing to believe in this story. I'm willing to believe that our government would keep this a secret from us. I mean, certainly they have no problem keeping plenty of other secrets and they certainly see people as a tool to be used and distrusted and uh, are not always looking out for our best interest and our right to information. So I buy that. If aliens were around, certainly they could withhold that information. I, I guess I buy the fact that alien life probably exists. I mean, ju- I just think like based on mathematic potential, it, it's very unfair to say only the earth could possibly have ever had the conditions to support life given the size of the universe. So I, I'm almost certain alien life exists, quite frankly. I I don't know its level of evolution or how similar to our own existence alien life will be, but there is something out there almost certainly. I buy that. That was the least skeptical I was about this entire question was the existence of other life in the galaxy. Okay. We're on the same page there. The thing that I can't really wrap my head around is that this galactic civilization. Oh, I also left out a part. They also have a secret uh, base underground on Mars that us astronauts have been to before said this person. What, what do the astronauts do? I don't know. That, well, I, that was not disclosed. So I assume these aliens who are talking to Trump are also talking to Elon Musk. Quite possible. Maybe that's what this is really all about on Elon's side is just trying to get up there for another meeting with the aliens. Yeah. But the point where this breaks down for me is that the Dude, aliens. It's, it's broken down for me. But <laughs> no, it's ahead. just this one point is, is that the aliens would come see the state of us as a civilization choose to talk primarily with the U S and Israel. Like that's, that's the two entities. They're like, yeah, these people have their shit together. We'll, we'll negotiate with them and figure out what's going on and then decide to stick around after seeing what we have going on and being like, Oh, they'll figure it out in a few years. No, we're not, we're not going to figure it out in a few years. We're nowhere close to figuring it out. In fact, things seem to be progressively getting worse. So, I mean, if the aliens wanted to intervene, that would be swell. Like if they have some great alien ideas or some cool alien technology they want to share. Sure. But I don't really get the idea that they're just going to like hang back and wait for us to figure our stuff out because we haven't really shown any signs of doing so. They must have ran out of gas or something. Maybe. Maybe they're just stuck in our neck of the galaxy at this point and and they they don't know how to get away. And their solutions, their technology, our feeble brains would not be able to comprehend. Because we only that. we only think in three dimensions or whatever. I don't know. Sure, totally uh, buy that as a possibility. But for them, I'm, maybe they made they needed to make contact first, right? It's like you just you like telescope from Mars, right? And you're you're looking on down. It's like you know, there's people in their lives. There's like some technology. Everything looks fine. You're like, oh, let's let's make contact. All right. Oh, United I just had States. such a good theory. Go ahead. Go ahead. United States. Let's talk. Let's talk to. Grand Supreme Leader of the United States, right? And then they're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Dude, what if they're ghosting us? What if they came down, they like talk to us, and they're really like polite aliens, 
So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we definitely want you to be part of the Galactic Federation. But just take a few years, get your stuff together, and then we'll reconvene. We'll reveal ourselves to the humans, and we'll take it from there. And no, then yeah, they just bounce out of the galaxy. Yeah, don't don't call me. I'll call you. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Okay. Now this becomes more plausible. We are presently okay. being okay. ghosted by these aliens who now want nothing to do with us. And uh, I don't blame them. I, I actually don't have an answer for the second half of the question. I just really wanted to talk about these aliens because I love these news stories. Like I definitely watch like UFO videos and I, I think because I do have such a firm belief in the fact that like, there should be life elsewhere, I kind of just want the mystery to be unraveled. And it's not that like... I'm not frightened by it. In fact, like as a kid, I remember being very scared of aliens. Like they were high on my worry list, right up there with like quicksand and serial killers in my town of 200 people. Like all of those things I thought were huge problems, but (laughs) aliens were very, very high on the list of things I was concerned about. But now- I'm kind of enthralled by your fear of quicksand, honestly. Oh, quicksand could be anywhere. You never know when you're just going to get sucked into quicksand. But, But now- there's so much other like terror and fear in my life that has just consumed everything that I just want the answer. Like I, it, maybe it'll be a little scary to be subjected to aliens. Maybe they don't have the best intentions for us, but regardless, I would rather just get it sorted out while I have my time here on this planet and know exactly what's going on with other life forms. I, I think it would be a lot to take in, honestly. For sure. But it feels like the whole of existence. Like if we're doing this already, I I don't think you could add that much more to my plate. Like I already get through every day. I struggle through every day, but I get through it. So just adding this, it's like, sure, why not? Just one more thing on the list. I mean, I guess like this, is this, this sort of thing would invalidate a lot of the other stuff, right? Because it's like the, the mundane stuff, like the person who cut you off in traffic or whatever. It's like, that doesn't mean anything compared to what's going on out there. Right. Right. Assuming that there are other planets, other life forms, whatever. But if you have a if you have a genuine belief in that, which it seems like you do, and and I do, I'm I'm just open to the possibility, right? Like there's okay, okay, there, there's like a, a lot of space, right? A lot right. of galaxies. It is very unlikely that if this planet can exist the way it does, that there's also not a similar thing going on somewhere else, right? Right, and. Maybe it's not similar where it's like there are humanoid things and like furry animal things or whatever. It's like, yeah, I'm kind of with you, man. When I was when I was a kid, it's like you think about aliens. I I assume they're like the scary, mean, like Independence or like ID four, whatever. Well, did you ever watch ones. Fire in the Sky? Probably long time. That ago. is the movie that messed me up. That movie is creepy and also as a kid i don't understand when they say based on a true story like they there's not some vetting process they have to go through before they can say that like i'm like oh well this is a true story it has to be real and it didn't really click with me like you just say that so people pay attention to your thing but right. if, if you yeah. haven't seen fire in the sky i don't even know if i'm recommending it but if you want to understand where my alien fear was born i, I think it was pretty clearly with that movie and i remember reading a book called communion I believe by like an author who wasn't like a sci-fi author. He was like a, uh, an established author, but he said he was abducted by aliens and wanted to share his true story. And I think he later recanted and, and said it wasn't the case, but again, true story. I'm a kid. I read this stuff and I am convinced every single time I leave my house at night, aliens are waiting to abduct me. All right. 
I don't believe I've seen this movie. I, I, so quicksand, it just, it doesn't, you know, really bother me that much because I've never seen quicksand in my life. Right. For whatever reason, I don't know. I'm on Wikipedia. It's like this person awakens inside a slimy cocoon that, that bothers me. Yeah. Uh, no, it's messed up. Like as far as like body breaking, horror goes, yeah, it's really breaking, bad. Breaking out of membranes, it's like yeah, I don't, I don't really want to deal with that. It gets worse. It gets much. Worse. I, I actually can't believe the movie was rated. I think it was rated PG thirteen, and it's kind of unbelievable that that's the case. Oh well. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, if if we find out that that life exists, right? Then I start thinking a lot about that, and I want to know the answers to that. And I don't really care so much about what's going on down here. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we all need something else to focus on for a little bit, and then once once we have this question answered, then I can start thinking about what decks I'm going to bring to play when me and the aliens finally get to parlay and play our games of Magic: The Gathering. Well, see, there's there's a lot to unpack here, though, too, because if we're believing in the aliens ghosting Trump and and stuff like that, I mean, like what what do they think the most fun gameplay is or what do I think that they think like, you know, maybe you need to bring like some actual 5D chess type of stuff to like make us make us seem like we're an intelligent species. So you're saying they love like what paradox engine mirrors? Like that's what they're into these days, or no? Definitely, definitely not modern, right? It would be like the the most interactive and skill based nonsense, like cobbled mirrors or something, right? Okay, it'll be interesting. Well, this is this is something we will come back and revisit after the Galactic Federation reveals itself. And we know a little bit more about the alien personality. So we're putting this question on the back burner for the time being. You have the first part discussed. As far as what decks we're going to choose, I'm going to wait for more information about the Galactic Federation. Thank you for understanding. Uh, yeah, I mean, fun is subjective, right? Like, I would I would love to play Cobblade Mirrors. I wouldn't like to play Paradox Engine Mirrors or, like, Goblins Mirrors necessarily. Like, Legacy Goblins, all right, I could get down with that. But, like, mm -hmm. Historic Goblin Mirrors, not so much. Yeah, I just feel like they would like the the workings of the machine, like how it all comes together and sure. seeing the pieces. But I, I'm being very uh, assumptive about what aliens are like, and maybe that's unfair. I think I should wait for more information. Maybe they just like attacking for two, dude. Like, you Could don't, be. You don't know. You know? Maybe but they play Commander. What if the aliens all play Commander and we're trying to force 60 cards upon them? Yeah, Messed okay. So, so you're getting close, right? You're like, oh, intricacies of like Paradox Engine – nonsense taking like a hundred actions per turn doing like these big splashy things like yeah i mean that's that's commander dude you know you're getting close yeah that's true uh maybe maybe you want to do like renounce bargain stuff you know like that's a pretty weird combo deck i could see just like draft being pretty fun for them everyone loves draft i mean whether you're alien or human you're gonna enjoy a good draft uh i like the draft i will not play the games but i like the draft Okay, maybe that's what they do too. They just draft and leave. They ghost you. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll be back to play the games later. I just got to go over here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got got to go get lands. You need anything? Right. You need some yeah. planes, whatever. Okay, yeah. Back to Mars. Not paying. All right. <laughs> just like the good old days. Game.
luck.